0: This is Rob Lott, and you're listening to the latest episode of Health Affairs This Week, a weekly conversation with a rotating cast of health affairs editors. I'm excited to say that in a moment, I'll get to introduce a special guest, the co-author of our latest health policy brief. Uh, But to get us started, I thought a quick recap might be in order. If you've followed health affairs publication of health policy briefs, you'll know that for about the first 10 years that we've produced them, they were focused on traditional topics of health services research. I'm talking about coverage, payment policy, value-based contracts, health affairs, bread and butter. But a few years ago, with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we made a shift. Uh, My colleague, Senior Editor Laura Tolan, has led us on a journey with these briefs to focus on topics that maybe fall a little further outside our comfort zone. These are topics at the intersection of health and everything else. We're talking about social determinants, upstream factors like housing, childcare, income supports, factors that are really just as influential on people's health and well-being as medicine and and medical care. And now with the brief we've just released today, you can add to that list the topic of aggressive policing and its impact on population health. I'm delighted to welcome here today the co-author of this brief, Dr. Hedwig Lee professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Equity at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Lee's co-authors were Savannah Larimore, also at WashU, and Michael Esposito at the University of Michigan. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for your work on this brief and for being here today.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here to talk to you about this.
0: So let's start with some definitions. I think when the term aggressive policing comes up today, the image that surfaces in the mind of many Americans, sadly, is the picture of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin and his knee on George Floyd's neck. But we also know that it's not always so blatant and aggressive policing can take on many different forms. So for the purposes of this brief, how did you and your co-authors define aggressive policing?
1: For this brief, we really defined aggressive policing as being more a more expansive set of strategies that's used by law enforcement um, to proactively control behavior um, and strictly punish all levels of behavior, so from the smallest infractions to to bigger um, and more serious o- offenses.
0: Okay, so here at Health Affairs, we're a health policy journal. Um, why are we why are we talking about this at health affairs why are these trends important to consider through the lens of public health and maybe more broadly the health of populations
1: i think uh, health affairs is doing a great job in helping us to understand that all policies are health policy so I want to say that first and any kind of policy we think of from education policy to crime policy does have impacts on health and policing is no exception we know from a large and growing body of research that aggressive policing, has negative impacts on individuals who experience aggressive policing and also individuals in the communities in which they live. And there's even newer research suggesting that police violence impacts national populations who are viewing these images and learning about these horrible incidents in their homes via social media.
0: Great. So uh, you you hinted at this a little bit, and and maybe we can walk walk through this a little bit. I think you and your co-authors with this brief did a great job of breaking down the different mechanisms that really come into play here. Um, So let's start with the impact on individual health. What do we know about how that works in terms of aggressive policing and individual people's health and well-being?
1: I think we can first think about what would first come to mind when we're thinking about aggressive policing, right, which are these very highly violent, sometimes fatal interactions that can occur in certain aggressive policing experiences. And those can lead to, you know, physical injury, you know, based on those aggr- aggressive experiences and sometimes even death. And so we know that the, in the United States, we have really high rates of police related uh, homicides compared to other industrialized countries. So that's sort of the first sort of individual level outcomes we can think about. There's also mental health consequences of individual experiences with police violence. And so these are highly stressful events that can also lead to short-term mental health outcomes, as well as long-term mental health outcomes for some individuals. The other thing that we can think about as well, in addition to sort of these mental health consequences of policing is also just some practical public health sort of health behavior outcomes that are related to policing. So, for example, Jeff Fagan has done a lot of work in New York City uh, documenting the experiences of African-American and Latino men, young men who are consistently stopped by police over time on many days out of the week. These uh, frequent stops can also be really problematic because they just impact young men's ability to use space. So, you know, some young men, when they're interviewed, talk about the fact that they don't feel comfortable just walking down the street. So people aren't engaging in physical activity. They're not able to walk and use places and spaces the way others can. So we can also think about sort of these just everyday health behavior consequences of, of, of being an individual that might be targeted.
0: That's a great segue. Your reference to neighborhoods sort of suggests that in addition to the individual health impacts, there's also a sort of broader community impact as well. Is that right?
1: Yes. We also should be thinking about the ways in which aggressive policing expands to hurt or harm, not just the individuals who experience that, but the communities in which they're embedded. And in the brief, we talk about this, and we talk about the, the the sort of work that suggests that places where there are high levels of policing intervention are, are places where where communities are also feeling high levels of stress. They're feeling as though they are also being surveilled. This makes them vigilant. This impacts their uh, feelings and safety about using space and walking to, to spaces and places in ways that can have uh, negative or damaging mental health effects for community members. There's also other work that suggests we should also be thinking about family members connected to those who who have experienced violent interactions with police. And the stressors related to worrying about the well-being of the person who had those experiences if that person uh, hasn't passed, but also the ways in which other people in their family who look like them might also um, be impacted.
0: So it sounds like when we sort of put those two pieces together, the individual health impacts, the community health impacts, you also see um, direct consequences in terms of health equity.
1: Yes, you do see direct consequences in terms of health equity because we know that the communities that are most impacted by incarceration are black and brown communities. We know the individuals that are most likely to die at the hands of police are uh, African-American men. Uh, that means that the negative consequences of over-policing are being borne by black and brown communities, which then could help t- us to understand why we see persistent health disparities in the United States.
0: To some extent, you've described um, what we do know about the relationship between aggressive policing and and public health and population health, what don't we know yet?
1: I I don't want to sound pessimistic, and I I hope that our brief sounded hopeful. But we don't really have great statistics about information about policing at all. We don't require a lot of police departments to collect these data. The U.S. government is now trying to replicate those kinds of efforts to better understand how many people are being killed by police and who is being killed by police but we still have a long way to go. With the data that we do have available, we are able to show that we are outliers compared to countries that we compare ourselves to for economic reasons, etc., but we need to do better about that. And we also need to do better about collecting just other sort of information about everyday policing. We just don't have good documentation of any kinds of policing practices in ways that could help us to better understand the policing landscape. Again, I just want to temper that by saying there has been Great work by researchers being really innovative, MacGyver style, trying to get data together, trying to make trying to make it work, and also really great, you know, qualitative work that helps us to understand this, and also just, you know, work of you know individuals on the ground talking to people who experience this stuff day to day, right? Because you know, for for some of us listening to this, this might be surprising, but if you live in communities that are being policed, this is an everyday thing. And there are lots of people that share their stories all the time to help us to understand. But there's definitely more work to be done there. And then just getting into some of the other data, specific data needs, we have to then be able to link these data to health outcomes. And so we don't have really great longitudinal data that could help us to get at some of the causal relationships we want to understand between policing um, and health. So I think data collection is going to be really a big issue. And then I think as we allude to in the paper, and as you've talked about as well, Rob, is just the need to really provide or have more data to help us to better understand and measure these everyday experiences, the kind that wear and tear on your body. Of course, it's important to understand incidences that lead to death or a person being severely injured. These are the things that we see on TV. We also need to understand how these everyday stops are impacting people's, you know, mental health and their long-term physical health, because those things also matter for quality of life and are, are just as important.
0: Maybe to wrap up, I, I just want to acknowledge um, that when it comes to a topic like aggressive policing, we're reminded again and again in social sciences that each data point, whether it's the qualitative data or the quantitative data. Um, each one is actually another human being, whether it's another George Floyd or another Breonna Taylor or the hundreds or thousands of stories that that you alluded to that don't go reported in the daily news. Each of these individual cases has its own details and uh, human actors and human victims that sort of resist easy summarization and, and solutions. And so Uh, I'd love to hear from you as a researcher in this space. How do you reconcile that tension between the sort of broad epidemiological scope of uh, our work and the the human experiences that um, we're trying to understand?
1: That's a really important point that you bring up. And I'm so glad you did because it's not often something that's talked about when we do this research. I'm definitely a demographer and I, you know, I really think it's important that we have population-based uh, data to be able to provide the receipts to to, to show <laughs> to show policymakers. To show people who want to look away that these are actually patterns, that there, this is a lot of people, this is an, a small amount of people, and that black and brown people are systematically the people that are bearing the brunt of these practices that need to change. And especially for me as a person who identifies as African-American and Puerto Rican, you know, this really hits home for me. These are my cousins. These, This is my brother. Uh, these are the people uh, that matter to me, too. And so I, I don't know if I can reconcile you know, how do we, you know, how do we uh, humanize these numbers? But I, I think what I, what I can reconcile, at least for me personally, is that I'm providing the evidence base to make sure that people have to listen. And people cannot uh, treat these uh, situations as one-offs. Uh, this is happening, this is happening every day. And even if a person isn't being hurt physically or being killed, it's still important that we change how we treat people because everybody deserves to have humanity. Everybody deserves to be able to walk down the street and not worry that they're going to be stopped by police just because of the way they look or um, what neighborhood they live in. That that is not that is inequality, and we have to fix that. And those are inequality. That these are um, forms of inequality that do have consequences on on people's health. And so I guess that's how I, I reconcile it. I also just wanted us to recognize when we're thinking about the people who have been killed, which we should, and we we should name, we should say the, the names of these people. But we should say their names and we should make that known to the public that they are also connected to brothers and sisters and moms and dads and communities that are also impacted by their deaths in really important ways and also can lead to you know poor health for those individuals too so when you think about Eric Garner also think about Erica Garner right she, she died too in her 20s of a heart attack and you know we can't say that the death of her father was the direct reason why that happened but I think it helps us to think about the ways in which police violence reverberates and, and can have you know lasting impacts on people connected to those who, who've passed away
0: dr. Lee thank you very much uh, I think this a uh, great spot to wrap up. Really appreciate your work on this brief uh, and uh, taking the time to talk with us here today. Thank you. That does it for health affairs this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend, subscribe, and we'll look forward to, uh, to seeing you next week.